Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have Flip Michaels. But before we get to the show, uh, Christian Focus would like you to know um, a few things. Um, They want you to visit ChristianFocus.com to see the latest releases in theology, biblical studies, and reference books. You can also get super exciting about this. Get 15% off by using the code Equipping in Grace, no spaces, all lowercase is at checkout. That's equipping in grace. Uh, that's your code. And uh, Flip, I just want to welcome you to the show today. It's It's been awesome just to get to chat with you for a little bit here before we record. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And for our listeners, you're going to notice that the audio is a little bit better. I have a brand new, my wife got it for me for my anniversary. It is a brand new Yeti Yeti professional uh, bundle. It has a, a boom arm and I also have a pop filter. So hopefully that makes the sound a little better. Uh, I had a blue uh, my snowball microphone before flip. So um, I've, I've moved up in the blue microphone world, I guess. I am honored to be the guinea pig. Yeah. And, and flip, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Sure. I'd be happy to. I, um, I married out of my league, uh, married to my wife for just over 23 years. I have three teenage girls, uh, ladies, now that I call them. They're 13, 15, and 17. I often tell people I have a house full of women. Please pray for me. <laughs> but the truth is um, I live very well. I'm very well taken care of. I spent the past 20 years in broadcasting all in the Northeast from New York to D.C. to Pennsylvania, primarily radio, number of secular stations, New York, D.C., and then ran uh, D.C.'s Christian radio station in uh, Washington, D.C. for a while. I entered the pastorate in 2011, so what's that, uh, seven years, eight years. I'm just outside of Hershey, PA, as the associate pastor at Grace Life Church. I hold degrees from Clark Summit University and Baptist Bible Seminary. Uh, let's see, you asked about a current ministry project. We are putting together right now, I'm working on our Grace Life Getaway. This is a um, an annual retreat for our church family, and this year's focus is on social justice and the gospel with Tom Askell. He's one of the um, original framers of the statement on social justice and the gospel. And every year we do this with our church family, and we go to a different location, not too far away. We're staying in Pennsylvania this year. In the past, I think we've had, let's see, we've had Phil Johnson, we had Justin Peters last year, we've had Kent Hughes, uh, Bruce Ware, so we've had some really good guys. Wow. Uh, you'll have to tell, uh, I have a funny story about Tom Askell. Every time I've seen him at a conference or whatever, he points to me and uh, then walks away. <laughs> so tell Tom, I well, not every time, but tell Tom Dave, I, Dave said hi. He's, uh, he's a I will. Guy. I certainly will. Yeah. He'll be like, who? No. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't do that, but... Uh, yeah, I haven't seen him in a while, so hopefully he's doing well. That sounds like a wonderful event. 
I'm sure it'll be uh, very edifying for everybody that goes there. So. Oh, it's it's coming up in a few weeks here. It'll it'll be the middle of March, so uh, it's just around the corner. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Excellent. So, Flip, can you uh, please tell us a bit about your book, Five Half Truths, addressing the most common misconceptions of Christianity, why you wrote it, and how you hope it's received, please? Sure, Dave. I'd love to. Hey, the, the first words for me in my book actually form an accusation. I say that we all know at least three liars, and this is the unholy trinity. It's me, myself, and I, and the Bible agrees with this, telling us in Psalm 116 that all men are liars. We stretch the truth, we break promises, we plagiarize, we sit with little white lies, and we have no problem today with bold-faced lies. But the most dangerous and deceptive of them all is the half-truth. This is a two-faced lie. Half-truths are whole lies. There's a motive behind this crime. Something has been left out by the teller to deceive the hearer. And there's a quote by J.I. Packer related to this. He says, uh, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Let me say it again. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And and that's the premise in which my book was written upon. For We all struggle with discerning with half-truths today. It doesn't matter whether it's in politics, in media, in the workplace. It's, it's commonplace. And you can imagine the damage a half-truth does within the realm of Christianity. And so I wrote this book to uncover what has been intentionally hidden. Five half-truths addressing the Bible, addressing Christianity, God, Christ, and faith. They're all fundamental truths that are under assault today. Uh, let's see. And you asked uh, how I hope it's to be received. Um, my prayer has been that it would not be about my fame, but his name, that I guess if you're an unbeliever, that you would be challenged to consider the authority of Scripture, and, as well as the exclusivity of Christianity and Christ's claims. And if you're a believer, that you would be encouraged and, and edified by what you would read on its pages, perhaps even placing a copy in the hands of someone that you're evangelizing or, or um, discipling. Yeah, I thought that it was really important, and it is important. Uh, I was reminded as I read it... Um, about Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, famous thing that he talks about when he says, uh, I think it's the, the in, uh, preaching of preachers, I believe. It could be wrong about that. But, you know, to, to explain, oh yes, excellent. Uh, to explain what a thing is not, to help people understand what a thing is. And I can't remember exactly where he wrote that, but um, that's always just stuck out to me. And, and it reminded me of your book because, I mean, really that was what you're trying to do. You're trying to explain what it isn't and then you explain you know what the truth is you know the whole truth about it which i i really appreciate it so thank you dave you know i i love that book i've i've read it twice and i need to read it again uh i appreciate the correlation you make as well the issue uh that we have today and i know you agree with this is an issue of discernment and uh that's really an, another point here related to the purpose of the book uh we need to be discerning Christians. We need to be Bereans. We need to be testing things with the Word of God. And we get lazy. We get uh, apathetic at times about that. And so error creeps in, and that's how we get these half-truths. Yeah, that's really good. Of the half-truths you write about, which one have you struggled with uh, the most to fully believe in your own Christian life and even in your ministry? Hmm. Uh if I, if I had to pick just one, I guess I would go with the first half-truth, and that would be the Bible was written by men, because uh, that's where my struggle began. Um, I, I, I say that because I bought the lie that the Bible was a collection of fairy tales. You know, it was polished over 
years into some magnificent moral stories. And uh, very few people in my personal bubble space at that time, some 24 years ago, when I was struggling with that, could respond intelligently when I would push back with those kind of answers. And then even today, I would say it's probably the same half truth because I want to live much like Bunyan did in his day. I know Spurgeon once said to John Bunyan, something like prick him anywhere and he bleeds Bible verses, you know, that he's full of the word of God. The whole truth is that the Bible is written by men and it's inspired by God. And I, I want to live and breathe in such a way that submits to that precious truth, you know. I, I And so I guess I would say it would be the first half truth. I would struggle with that. Not that I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Certainly I do. But um, I think to to be faithful to it in such a way that uh, when you prick me, I would believe Bible verses. That's where I want to land today. Hmm. That's really, uh, that's really good. You know, and what's amazing about, you know, John Bunyan, we know that he was imprisoned and, you know, he wrote so beautifully and wonderfully. You know, you know, we need guys like that, that, you know, can, I think it was Burke, Burke Parsons says amazing things on Twitter and he's such a gracious, humble guy. Yeah, he does. You know, but he yeah. says, if you don't know the answer to something, you know, just, just tell somebody like that, that, that you don't know. That's the most theologically right. accurate thing that you can say. And I think you just did that so well. You know, you were honest about, you know, believing the Bible. And um, I grew up in Seattle. And so nobody believe really, nobody believes the Bible there. They all question it and belittle it. And uh, learning to respond to things like that was very instructive as a teenager uh, and, and forced me to get into the Bible. And um, so I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Oh, thanks. Why is it so important that our worldview be grounded in the authority of, of the Word of God and not in our own opinion? Well, uh, you know, what does it mean to call yourself a Christian today? I think that would be another way to ask that question, right? Uh, what does a person mean by the words, I'm a Christian? Because uh, sadly, uh, it can mean just about anything and everything today. Uh, you take somebody like the uh, an organization like the Westboro Baptist Church, which is a cult in Kansas, and they would, and they do call themselves Christians. They, they claim to speak for Christianity, and I, I'm not going to begin to quote Fred Phelps and his followers here, but I know you and I can agree that they bring great discredit to the gospel of Christ because the message is undiluted hatred packaged as the word of God. And then you have like the Mormons, and they claim to be Christian, and they worked hard to confuse others by marketing this concept to the world. They, they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yet you and I both know that the Jesus they promote is not the Jesus of the Bible. Roman Catholics call themselves Christians. Christian scientists do. Freemasons, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Seventh-day Adventists, and the list goes on and on. You can add faith healers, uh, others who deny the Trinity, uh, and this is only a representation of Christianity, but it's a false Christianity, and it's the one the world sees. So to answer your question, you know, true Christianity can be defined no other way than by describing the church, ecclesia, the called out one, as Christians that are grounded in the authority of God's Word. So they're living according to the Word of God through the power of the Spirit. There's nothing added. There's certainly nothing taken away. We are people of the book. And so asking a true believer what he or she would think on an issue, I would hope they couldn't answer without quoting a text from Scripture. Now, uh, a great program that's out there, uh, podcast as well, is Al Mohler's The Briefing. I think he attempts to do that on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, with uh, you know current affairs. He tries to bring a biblical worldview, a lens that we see things uh, through the lens of Scripture. And that's, that's really who we want to be as Christians. That's why it's 
so important to be grounded in the authority of Scripture. Mm, very well said. And and I mean, I would just say as well to our to our listeners that are listening, I would say yes, please do check out uh, Dr. Mueller. It's it's excellent worldview, and I've said this before on Twitter. Dr. Mueller's books, his his teaching, his podcast, his worldview analysis at the very best. I I couldn't, it can't be done better. I, I'm convinced. So you're absolutely right, Dr. Mueller. I, I love it. I try, I try and I try not to miss a single one as well. I I, I think they're just they're brilliantly done uh, because uh, they're teaching us to look at these affairs uh, through the lens of Scripture. We go to the Word of God first. We don't go to experience first. We go to doctrine first. And so, yeah, you know, again, back to that question you <clears> asked, <throat> it is that important to have a biblical worldview. Christians are grounded in the Word, not in a Yeah, I remember uh, having a conversation at Boise State. It was invited to uh, an apologetic of uh, ministry that will remain unnamed, but it's very prominent. And I was invited because I <coughs> follow them, followed them or whatever, and I was their top influencer or whatever that even is or something. So I was invited to come. And so I, I uh, ended up talking to a Jehovah's Witness, and he's, we, I asked him the question, who is Jesus Christ? And he said, well, I don't believe in the Jesus that you believe in and in the Bible that you believe in, which is an interesting way to say it. But the conversation ended uh, pretty abruptly and very quickly uh, by him saying, uh, you know, something to the effect of that it didn't, it, you know, what you believe didn't matter. Well, sir, with all due respect, it does matter because that's why, you're, and I said this to him, I said, with all due respect, sir, it does matter um, because uh, what you believe does matter. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be here, you know? Why are we even out here talking? You know, it matters because you're out here talking. And so I'm here talking to you and trying to have a conversation. Um, my, one of my other friends that that leads this apologist, uh, this, this apologist that leads this apologetics ministry um, had a camera and we went over and um, talked to him because I was like, you got to talk to this guy. And he said, actually, at the end, he's like, well, at least you weren't rude like this other guy that's recording this thing. And this is actually on YouTube. Um, so that was me recording it. I'm thinking all I did was ask you a question to have a conversation with you. And you, you know, I wasn't like swearing at him or saying anything mean or whatever. I just wanted to have a conversation with him. I knew what he believed, but I wanted to point him to Christ and share the gospel with him and, um, you know, engage him. And now I'm just like, you know, I have a hard time engaging with Jehovah's Witnesses because because of that, because I mean, they're 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 literally always right up the street. So there's always an opportunity to, to talk to a Jehovah's Witness. And the same is true with Mormons. I um, I just pray for them. I I know what they believe. I know what they think. Um, I know that they need the truth. But uh, man, Jehovah's Witnesses are some of the hardest people in my experience just to talk to. Just just really honestly. <clears throat> I, I would agree. I've I've had similar experiences. I I remember in my broadcasting uh, career uh, having um, some very interesting. Um, commitments with two Jehovah's Witnesses over uh, a lunch break and over a period of time we would meet together and I got them to commit to looking at the King James Bible. That's um, pretty much what you can get them to commit to, some of them. And it lasted for a while and and, uh, the conversations I thought were going to be fruitful, but um, it it didn't end well, sadly. Um, And and that happens often, you know. Um, But we we just want to be faithful to be those ambassadors. We we want to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And and recognize when they reject that they're not rejecting us; uh, they're rejecting him. And so it, it is. It, it is uh, difficult. And um, I certainly um, am grateful for for those who uh, really uh, commit the time and energy that they do to a lot of these um, uh, religions that are in error. 
just complete error. I mean, they, you know, they're cults. I guess there's always hesitating to say, but they're cults. Yeah. Uh, as I was talking about, you know, just Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, just uh, we, we, we just feel for them. We greatly feel for them. Those individuals that are entrapped in that and, and trying to add works to it and, and uh, twisting Scripture, adding to Scripture, taking away from Scripture is just such a dangerous thing. Obviously, it's a deadly thing. It's an eternal, eternally deadly thing uh, that we don't want to see happen. Uh, so we, we just plead with them. We plead with them with the, the, the truth. Mm, well said. Well said. There are many people today who, for example, think that the first few pages of Genesis are fiction. They're not the truth. And they also teach that Adam is not a real person in real history. I know you're probably familiar with this, you know, and we could go on and on with that. Um, how does believing in the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative Word of God help Christians face these challenges head on and confront, as you say, half-truths with the whole meaning? Hey, you know, you talk about the first few pages of Genesis and how there are those who uh, think it's fiction. I, I do have to recommend uh, uh, Ken Ham has written many years ago. He wrote a book, I'm uh, looking for it, I hear it's The Lie, and uh, it's been republished uh, since he originally wrote it, I think 25 years later here. It's an edition. It's been republished. It's excellent on that. But yeah, specific to your question, um, this is really the, the first half truth uh, in my book. The Bible is written by men and it's inspired by God is the whole truth. And, and in my book, I get into first the activity of how we receive the Bible. You know, it's an activity of special revelation versus natural revelation. And then I get into the authenticity of of the Bible and and where we have in our schools today, just in college alone, you have to read uh, individuals like Sophocles and Caesar and Plato. But when you compare the manuscript evidence that you have from those individuals to the Word of God, the Word of God is just incredible. Those pale in comparison. I mean, we have, I believe the number is 5,700, just the New Testament copies in hand right now. We're talking everything from uh, a single letter, a single word, to uh, entire sentences, to obviously they weren't chapters then, but entire chapters and full-blown letters, uh, documents that have been written. Uh, it's just staggering what we have, uh, 99.99%. Uh, manuscript evidence, New Testament. That's just incredible. But not only the authenticity, I get into even the accuracy of the Word of God. And so I take you through some areas historically uh, with archaeology. And so uh, there have been royal seals that have been found, over 400 seal inscriptions. These are personal signatures of Old Testament people. There are monuments. Uh, one was found in 1993 at the House of David, just as an example that I mentioned in the book. I mean, King David. That's monumental, all pun intended. Pilate's ring, this isn't in the book, but I think you know this, Pilate, Pilate's ring was uh, uncovered um, about 50 years ago when they were doing some work on it, and recently, um, uh, in doing some work again on it, found that it really is Pilate's ring. That's significant. That's just historically. Scientifically, when you deal with accuracy, you find with the Word of God that the life is in the blood. That's what the Word of God says. The hydrology cycle is in the Bible. Fixed orbit of the planets, all in the Bible prior to man discovering that. And that is staggering. And so that leads you to the authority, because after you examine the activity, the, the authenticity, the accuracy of the Bible, uh, you are left with really the question that does it bear the full weight of his authority, of God's authority? And I would answer, and I do in the book with a resounding yes. It's one long quote from God himself. You can put a quotation mark at the beginning of Genesis 1-1, and you can carry it all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 22-21, and add the close quotes. One long, seamless book, 
one singular message, not a product of the telephone game, as I uh, make the case uh, before I knew the Lord uh, in the book. Uh, it's not an assortment of fairy tales bound together. When you learn how we receive the Bible, you're left with really nothing else but to state it deserves to be called the Word of God. And so that's that's critical because when you recognize the authority of this book, when you recognize that it is literally the Word of God, then you've got to realize it's going to have an impact on your life and how you live. And so it's profound. Yeah, that's so well said. Um, it, it just brings to mind the, the fact that, you know, people say that there's no evidence for believing the Bible. There's no good reason, really. Um, the Christians are just anti-intellectual, and so they don't think with their brains. And it's like, do you understand that what they what they don't understand, really, truly, in their ignorance, and, and they're blind as well to this fact that uh, we have some of the greatest minds in the history of the world, men like John Calvin, who, you know, John and Edwards that people continue to study and study and study and they sure. haven't even found uh you know they they keep writing dissertations on him you know Calvin was like what 500 he's been dead 500 years you know people continue to write dissertations on Charles Spurgeon he's been dead uh over 150 years so i mean christians are not anti-intellectual much agree and and I would say that in in that chapter in that first half truth dealing with it I I intentionally come at apologetics from both sides um, I do come at it evidentially because I want people to see that God has given us uh, this is Romans 120 right but he's given us plenty to know that that there's a God uh, I mean it's without question uh, without excuse but I also want to be presuppositional in that I support scripture with scripture I make the case with Scripture. And I know that some will come at that and say, well, that's some circular reasoning. So I make sure that both are there to present that case. You know, when we're dealing with apologetics, at the end of the day, you look at that and you have to, you have to really struggle with that question. Is this really the Word of God? And when you go through these steps, when you look at the activity, when you look at the authenticity, when you see the accuracy of it, uh, you are left with that question. And, and that's really the question. Is this the Word of God? Because from there, all these others, the foundation, all these other question. You know, all, all, all these other steps here uh, will come. You, you've got to recognize that this is the Word of God. Yeah, that's well said. And and just for our listeners' sake, I just want to say, and I, I believe uh, we, we've had John Frame on twice, and I believe he would agree with me if he doesn't. I will ask him, but um, he would even he would even say, you know, presuppositional method. We're not against evidence, you know. Other people, I believe, have said that as well, and you know, so you know, we're not against we're not against when we say that we're for a worldview and dealing with pre uh, somebody's presuppositions. We're not against presenting evidence. Good example, a practical example, if I might, um, just really quickly. There was this guy at the same event I described earlier. Um, going back to that, there was an atheist guy, and he. Um, they were very <coughs> some of the people that were with us were very upset because he was threatening us and saying he was going to go to security or whatever And uh, but he was making specific claims so I pulled him aside I said let's go talk uh, I, I said he was saying that the Psalms are pagan in origin well I got a degree in uh, one of my master's degrees is in the Bible and I said uh, and I took a class on the Psalms at the seminary level and I said can you please tell me the source for that quote because I want to learn what you're talking about and I want to go look well I asked him this repeatedly probably like a dozen times, you know, and, and just ask him, prove the claim. You know, I wanted to prove the claim. 
tell me the source. I, I want to know it. Well, eventually he, he admitted that he didn't have a source. And, you know, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to make him feel like less of a person or to make him feel like an idiot. I just wanted him to prove him to tell me that he didn't know the source, that he didn't have a source. And because um, there's not a source for that. I knew that he did not, but he was making the claim and I wanted him to prove the argument. But what I was doing was I was engaging him at a, not to get him to, well, in a way I wanted to calm him down, but, and I also wanted to get him to stop threatening, but I also wanted him to see that he didn't know as much as he thought he did. <coughs> and that's, sure. that's an important point, you know, um, that in the presuppositional method, we're, we're talking about people that are, as you know, they're not neutral. They think they're neutral. And so they engage with us thinking that you know a we're anti-intellectual and that we don't know anything and so when we challenge them to prove the source we're actually in a way challenging their worldview we're challenging their idea of knowledge uh, that's 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 excellent i i would agree with that and i i think that's why uh it's important um that we we speak that truth in love so we we want to be firm on these things we we certainly want to uh be challenging uh provoking getting them to really think into question but at the same time we want to do it in such a way that um the way we present it is not the effect but the actual content, if anything, would be the offense, would be something that they would want to struggle with and work through. Yeah. Pluralism and tolerance are on the rise and seem to grow each and every day in our culture, even in some uh, quarters of the church. What separates biblical Christianity from other religions? You know, Dave, this gets to the uh, second half-truth in my book, where I state that all religions are the same. And the whole truth is, uh, all religions are the same except Christianity. And uh, I take you through the Gospel of John, which is a, a courtroom drama where uh, four in the book I use four, but there are eight witnesses that are called to testify by the Apostle John in, in the book. The four I use are John the Baptist, the works of Christ, uh, God the Father, and the Scriptures. And to assert that there is only one way to God, it just shocks postmodern mind because you have these religions like Hinduism that's a multifaceted belief system attacking any such claim of exclusivity. You know, Buddhists can never ever get past. John 14, 6, that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Buddhists are non-theistic, if not atheistic. So uh, Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God who led the way to the Father. You know, add Islam to this. Islam also considers that kind of claim to be blasphemous. So you have these Buddhists, you have Hindus, you have uh, Muslims, Mormons, Wiccans, fill in the blank with a, a world religion. They can never, ever get past the whole truth claims found in the Gospel of John. God's Word can't be lumped in with another because it's unlike any other. So, you know, you, you, you can't reconcile Christianity with any of the religions of the world. It has to come at the cost of truth if you're going to do that. You know, it'd be like saying your Bible is going to be some kind of perforated version. You're just going to punch out the verses you don't agree with, and then, then you could have this pluralism that you're speaking of, and that's just not possible. All religions are the same except Christianity. That's the whole truth. Hmm. Amen, brother. Everyone wants to be loved, accepted, and valued, and people go to all sorts of lengths to experience love. In the scriptures, God says that God is a God of love. So how do we balance the attributes of God's holiness with his love and his love with his holiness? Well, you know, I, I see what you're 
doing now, Dave. Thanks for doing that. We're now at the third half-truth in the book, and and that is that God is love, but the whole truth is uh, God is love and holy, holy, holy. And, and it really is the issue of semantics that you're talking about here. Words change in meaning over time by how they're used. So if you were to say you're a fundamentalist in the past, it would not be a scary word like it is today. You know, a fundamentalist in the past would be somebody who uh, holds to the fundamentals of the faith. But today, you don't want to say you're a fundamentalist and get on an airplane, right? And so the phrase God is love has been sanitized over time to insinuate that a loving God could never be a judging one. But the whole truth is that semantics, they have no sway on Scripture. The culture can't change uh, the timeless meaning of what God has said. Uh, he is holy. He set apart every single attribute, and that's going to include his love. It's going to be his mercy, his grace, uh, his His goodness, his His justice, again, his, his love. So he is holy, holy, holy. This is Isaiah 6. And, you know, when Isaiah sees that vision, when he has that vision of God, when he becomes aware of God, that is when he becomes self-aware of who he is in his sinfulness. And so it's only when we're aware of God that we see ourselves for who we really are. And that love that we're talking about here, it is a love that's a holy love that is rooted in the cross. Uh, there's no other love like it. Uh, when we try to take this love and we try to bring it down to some level, it really is not in Scripture, to be able to state something like, you know, I, I can live any way I want to, as long as I'm happy. God just wants me to be happy in how I live. That is not the God of Scripture. That is not the God of the Bible. Again, that that is taking love, and that is filtering it through some kind of semantic, some, some kind of cultural change to say something that is really not the attribute of God. God's love is unlike any other kind of love. It, it really is set apart. It, it's, it's, um, it's predicated upon His Word, upon who He is, His character, and who He is in every attribute, but certainly in His love. It's a holy love, is what I would argue. Hmm. Well said, man. Well said, brother. What difference does it make for our lives that Jesus is fully God and fully man? I like in the book to use the word truly instead of fully, and this is so minor, but I think sometimes when we say fully, um, we almost confuse things because we're talking about, well, are we saying 100% God and 100% man equal 200%? You know, what's fully really mean? The, the half-truth uh, that we're getting at is that Jesus was truly a man, and, and the, the whole truth is uh, Jesus is truly a man and truly God. And no one really disputed that the man from Nazareth was named Jesus really existed. Um, you know, you have liberal scholars, you have unbelievers today that really don't don't wrestle with that. And there's certainly plenty of uh, even uh, secular evidence uh, and, and claims that Jesus existed. But but here's the rub. Uh, he also claimed to be the Son of God, not merely a good teacher. He said he's one with the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And this gets into uh, C.S. Lewis's trilemma, right? Uh, he's either lies, he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is Lord. Uh, and certainly we would land on the Lord. But in our culture today, uh, there's really two options. Uh, he either is a swear word or he's our Savior. And so I argue in the book, in this chapter, that regardless of how a person addresses Jesus Christ in his life, you know, the, the reality of his dual nature, it remains. I mean, the whole truth is he's truly man and truly God. Uh, we have to take the Christ of Scripture. If we 
can go back to the first half truth or the whole truth, really, in recognizing that the Bible is written by men inspired and inspired by God. We recognize the authority of Scripture, then we need to take all of Scripture. And that claim in Scripture is that Jesus was truly a man and truly God. That's uh, that's just so well said. And it also gets to the heart of kind of what we've been talking about here today. You know, the church wrestled with these things. This gets into church history and probably as a tangent, but it's still relevant. You know, we were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and this gets to the heart of why this, just for our listeners' sake, just to clarify, uh, it gets to the heart of why we need to read the Bible and also and study it every day. But it also goes to why we need to study church history because, you know, responses to these things have already been offered. You know, we have, you know, the Nietzschean Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the, the Chalcedon Creed. And, and these statements were drafted by men who stud, men who studied, gathered together, studied and talked about these things and made these statements uh, to help us understand what the Bible teaches, what biblical orthodoxy is. And yeah. so we we have these answers, so we don't have to make up things. You know, that's what we see. People wanting to offer answers, it's like, we already have the answers. The answers were already offered. The early church already dealt with these things. You know, I mean, all across the board. I mean, on, on the vast majority of the, these subjects that people want to talk about, the church has already responded to it. So we just have to go back and study church history and, and study the scriptures. That's right. And and I, I would uh, I would lock arms with you in that and saying, hey, you know, we as brothers, we need to encourage people to get back into the word or get into the word for the first time. You know, usually when I'm talking to somebody who says, I really want to grow, how do I do that? One of the things I will tell them, and of course they don't at the end of the book as well, is um, you know, commit to reading the Gospel of John. Just, just the Gospel of John. Just take yourself uh, away, pull back, and commit some time and and read through. Get a good study Bible. Get a MacArthur study Bible, and 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 work your way through the Gospel of John. Uh, and and you'll see this. You'll certainly see this. And and yeah, of course, we can get into plug yourself into a solid local church. Uh, uh, that's that's so valuable as well. But uh, specific to what what you're stating here, we want to we want to get them into the Word of God. Uh, you know, m- make sure you're really reading the Word of God, and 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 yeah, don't be ignorant of uh, church history. Uh, it's there for a reason. It's very important. It's not dry. It's not academic. It, it really does have an impact on really where we land on Scripture today. Amen, brother. This next question is a is is a little bit of a personal one, but I think it's an important one because I think that a lot of people struggle with it. So here's here's the question: uh, Many Christians may have a good understanding of faith and works, but oftentimes I know in my own personal Christian life, for example, I can drift into more of a prof- performance mindset. By that, I mean, you know, it's my service to Christ that matters, uh, those kinds of things that, yes, while I'm saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, I need to push myself to do that next task or tasks. But I've, I've learned not only is that not healthy, it's also dangerous in the Christian life. Uh, I know that many of my friends also struggle to find rest in Christ. So what would you say to the person, me, um, who struggles in this area, but who believes in the biblical balance between faith and works, but struggles to rest in the finished and sufficient work of Christ alone? I, I think I would come at this really from two different angles, speaking to you, speaking to a believer. Uh, and that is that uh, first, I, I think I would deal with this in a recognition of what Christ has done on the cross for us. It, it, it Often, it, it's in our head, uh, but doesn't make it to the heart. We're, we're not living it out, and so we, we hold ourselves hostage for sins of the past. When we really are stating we believe that Christ has, has paid for those, he's, he's paid for those 
on the cross. His mercies are new each and every day. When you get up in the morning and you start your new day, uh, that's that's a blessing. Your, your sins have been forgiven of the past if you've repented of the, those sins, certainly if you're a believer in Christ. And so to to hold yourself hostage for sins of the past, to, to put that burden back on your shoulders is is in in a sense practically what you're almost stating is that Christ really didn't pay for your sins. And so in, in one sense and, and, and look I, I don't I don't want to uh, sound arrogant with this. Uh, I think it's something we all struggle with. Uh, if it weren't for the word of God telling me that uh, I am saved, uh, then I I would really have a hard time with this. You know, I don't always feel saved. I need to go to the word and, and I need to go to Romans ten nine and be reminded of what, what that says. I need to go to the the, the epistle of first John and be reminded of what it said there by this we know by this we know and so i'm grateful for the word of god and how it describes uh what what really qualifies as as a believer and, and our faith and, and recognizing that christ has paid that on the cross and, and keeping a short account of course with our word but the other side of it i said i would answer it in two ways i, I think this gets the stewardship as well you know our 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 salvation is a grace gift uh it's not a one-time event it's done it is something that's given to us to live for the glory of god and so we we need to be careful in not resting on our deeds in the sense that um, they define us, but in that we we want to glorify God with them. Um, it's you know it's, it's something in which we we recognize compared that that we rest in in the finished work of Christ. And and really the the second side of this, I said I'd answer in two ways: deals with our stewardship and knowing that the salvation uh, that we have as a believer in Christ, grace gift. That's something that's been given to us. And so we want to be found faithful in that. It's not something that uh, defines us. The, the the salvation itself, being a child of Christ, is our identity. That defines us. But our works don't define us. It's all done not for us, but for Him. So we, we seek to glorify His name with that. And so it is difficult because um, I can tell you personally, I can struggle with this. I'm a list-keeping kind of guy, Dave. And so, you know, I, I can look back and go, oh, okay, I was numbered faithfully and you know, this past month, and I've done this, and I've done this for the Lord, when uh, I recognize that it's not what I've done or what I do that keeps me uh, in His hand. It is His grace and His strength and His mercy that, that certainly does that, and I'm assured of my salvation in that way. In the book, I, I aim kind of in both directions. I aim to the believer and what I've just addressed with you, but dealing with the unbeliever, I come at it that God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, that, that fifth half-truth is that our good deeds matter, and the whole truth is excuse me, when preceded by faith. And so what's important here is that it as an unbeliever, you've often heard, hey, when I get to the pearly gates, you know, God is going to uh, weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds, and uh, hopefully I'll have enough good deeds that will get me into heaven. Well, our good deeds never, ever merit salvation. But even so, man keeps trying to devise a number of religious ways to save himself. These are works, but only one work merits salvation, and that's the atonement that we're talking about here. So it's the difference of, of human achievement versus divine accomplishment. You know, which are you going to place your faith in? And again, so the, to, to, to back up here and talk about your original question, you know, the, the biblical balance that's there, we need to be careful because we need to make sure that we're not resting in human achievement, even as a believer, that we're, we're not doing that, that 
that we're reminding ourselves, look, this has already been paid for us. Uh, it's a divine accomplishment. Uh, Christ has paid for that on the cross, and he's gifted us. We haven't earned our salvation. There's nothing in me that's redeemable in the sense that I earn, I deserve his salvation. Uh, it is a gift. It is a grace gift. And even the fruit of the Spirit, you know, is a result of that. Those those are grace gifts. Every, everything that I do that is um, bringing honor and praise and glory to God is because it began with him. For he loved us first. Hey, amen. I mean, I really couldn't have said it any better. You know, and I, I thankfully by grace, I've, I've definitely have grown in this area and, and definitely addressing the things that you, the, the way that you said it was so good. You know, it's not about, you know, I think it's Charles Spurgeon, you know, who said that we don't, we don't keep ourselves secure. It's Christ who holds us fast. And of course there's that him that hold, he will hold us fast as well. Um, and it's so true, you know. This is why I think this this particular question I wanted to come at it. I was hoping you would answer it this way because I think what happens is that what Christians don't understand is the sufficiency of Christ and how they're held fast every down to the nanosecond really um you know there, there's not one second of every day that where christ doesn't hold us fast and you know he's utterly sufficient for everything in our lives you know and so without that we're we can't be held fast and we are that's why i love about the book of hebrews for example it just talks so yes. beautifully about this and you know if you struggle with i would just say to people if they struggle with assurance and and those kind of things read Read the book of Hebrews and don't be alarmed by the the uh, the warning passages. You know those are those are meant to get you to do some examination, some some heart work that the Spirit wants to do in your life, not to get you to question your salvation, but to evaluate yourself and um, under God's word by the Spirit and uh, to say, hey, are these things in my life? Or do, are these warnings true? If they are, repent. You know um, that's meant to actually increase your assurance. You know, read First John, same thing. Those evidences, those marks, or if you will, of of you know, loving God and loving others. That's what John wants you to get at. He wants you to evaluate your life in light of Christ's sufficient work for you. Yes, that's that's such good and godly counsel for us all. You know, that's that's one of the main reasons we're in the Word. You know, uh, we need to be convicted. We need to be challenged in those areas to continue to grow in our faith in Christ. Amen. So I have a personal question for you. Uh, you write on page 147 that the half-truths we'll talk about today were your truths and how you would deflect and deceive yourself from biblical truth. Can you walk us through what you mean there? Maybe share a bit about your journey, how you came to see and believe these critical these critical five biblical truths. Sure, Dave. You know, I, I'd love to because I, I intentionally waited to the end of the book to uh, give my personal testimony. I, I say often that the book doesn't mention me until the very end, but it is my personal testimony how I came to faith in Christ. I had used these half-truths each of them to deflect any real consideration of the whole truth. And uh, early in my broadcasting career, I kind of alluded to this earlier in our conversation. I was 24, I'm 48 now, so so half half my age. Uh, I was working in an adult contemporary station that's kind of like Phil Collins, Billy Joel in, in New York. And I was working with a disc jockey named Barbara. And she was labeled as our resident Jesus freak. And that was a term being thrown about 
And I, I was warned by coworkers not to engage her in truth-seeking debate, which perhaps is the New Yorker in me and only encouraged me to do so. And so I began to challenge her with these half-truths, and Barbara would push back. So I would say the Bible was written by a bunch of old men. That's the half-truth that I, I used, the very first one. She would lovingly but firmly uh, push back that, you know, it's written by men and inspired by God. And the example I would use uh, in that situation, I was talking about Jesus walking on water from Matthew 14. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And I would say, hey, that's the product of the telephone game. You know, it, it, it uh, the telephone game, you, it, great icebreaker. You sit in a circle and you start with a phrase and you whisper it to another who whispers it to another and to another. And by the time it comes back, it's just nothing like the original. And I said, you know, Matthew 14, Jesus walking on water. It's a, just a beautiful morning, early morning. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. He's, you know, skipping stones. And it's just, oh, it's just breathtaking. I mean, you can take a selfie. It's just a really beautiful day. And and 2,000 years later, he's walking on the water instead of skipping stone. And so she really challenged me in that. And another example uh, I, I share in the book is um, uh, with Peter and his wife. Peter and his wife, as you may be aware of, was sentenced to death uh, for sharing the gospel. And I believe it's in Assyria. Uh, and this is church tradition. And tradition tells us that Peter, before he was being to be crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. And so his wife was placed on the cross. And as his wife was dying on the cross, uh, he knelt at her feet and kept repeating to her, uh, remember Christ. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember Christ. And I was so struck by that. But it's not done yet. After she had died, he himself was crucified, as we know, uh, upside down because he had said he's unworthy to die like his Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. And so I, I was really struck by uh, these whole truths and by doing the homework, by by learning more about it. And certainly when you look at uh, what I've I would have taken you through, what I've talked through on these five half truths, you, you really uh, you really have to then begin to ask that question: Am am I going to surrender? Am I going to place my faith in Christ alone? Uh, is, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is the Word of God really uh, authoritative, uh, inerrant, uh, sufficient? Uh, is it truly the Word of God? Uh, and for me, uh, honestly, it was during a commercial break in that studio that I placed my faith in Christ alone. And uh, uh, it's an amazing journey uh, from that day. And so I am so grateful for God opening my eyes at that time. And um, that's really my personal testimony there. You know, I was convicted of my sin, uh, repented, placed my faith in Christ. Mm, praise God, brother. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, I, I struggle with where to place this question for you at the beginning or at the end. And I ended up, I'm, I'm glad that I ended ended up putting at the end of this interview because I think it, 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 it exactly encompasses exactly what you wanted to share in this book, not just to share your personal testimony, but to make much of Christ and point people to him and to help them understand what it means to be a Christian. So I really uh, very much appreciate um, you sharing your testimony. Oh, thanks for asking. You know, there's there's really, that's probably my favorite question to be asked. I mean, I, I love to share uh, what God has done, what God has done, because it's a work of God. It's only him. It's all him. Amen. Well, Flip, there's a lot that we haven't uh, talked about or covered in the course of this interview. You know, we could definitely dive pretty deep into all of these. Um, just as we wrap up this conversation, do you have a few takeaways for our listeners? Uh, 
Yeah, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind it if you're okay with this. Um, I wouldn't mind thanking two men specifically. You know, Phil Johnson uh, wrote the foreword of the book, and I, I just want to say that uh, uh, Phil, I should say first, he's the executive director of Grace to You. He's um, uh, very involved in John MacArthur's teaching media ministry, and it's most of John's major books. But uh, when I was commuting in Washington, D.C., uh, which ended up growing from 45 minutes each way over time to two hours each way, your life kind of passes before your eyes when you're commuting like that. Some of your, your listeners will know that. Um, I was feeding a lot at that time on uh, cassettes at that time on, on uh, MacArthur's ministry, uh, Master's Seminary, and anything and everything that Phil Johnson would put out as well. And so he, he has, con- and he continues to have a profound influence uh, on me. So I was just so grateful to have him write the forward. And um, the other guy I guess I would mention here is um, Brandon Kimber, and that's kind of a new name. He's with Transition Studios in Cleveland, and he just came out not too long ago with uh, the film American Gospel. Dave, are you familiar with that, American Gospel? Um, Nate, I know Nate spoke on it, and Costi did, but I haven't watched it. No. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, Brandon invited me up to Cleveland over the uh, Christmas break uh, to Alistair Begg's church uh, and offered to record some promos for this book. Uh, the, the number of the guys who are in American Gospel are the same guys, the solid guys, are the same guys who um, endorsed my book. And so uh, it was just a, a terrific time being together, and uh, I was so grateful for that. So I, I, if there was anything I could add, th- these guys, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have uh, have them associated in some way with this book. Oh, excellent. And it's definitely always okay to, to share about how uh, God's used other people. I, I think that it's not only important, but it's also very encouraging, and uh, so thank you for sharing. And Flip, thank, thank you. you. Thank you also for the great uh, answers that you've given. Uh, really have enjoyed this conversation. I know that our listeners will as well. So thank you, brother, for your time and uh, the great answers that you've given. Uh, thanks, Dave, for having me. You're welcome, brother. Um, I'd like to thank Christian Focus for sponsoring today's episode. Visit ChristianFocus.com to see the latest releases in theology, biblical studies, and reference book. Get 15% off by using the code Equipping in Grace. No spaces, all lowercase, at checkout. That's Equipping in Grace at checkout. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Servants of Grace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.